This is Steve Goodrich, known on the trail as Bird Shooter, and this is N2 Backpacking, a podcast for both hikers and backpackers. Hey backpackers, Bird Shooter here. And tonight on the show I speak with Kevin Conley. You might recall from previous episodes where he detailed his adventures on the Appalachian and Pacific Crest Trails and his two years exploring the U.S. and living out of his car after his through hikes. This evening we catch up with Kevin, who we know as KC and 30-pack in previous discussions, and we talk about his life since 2016 when we last spoke. Kevin has completed multiple thru-hikes of the John Muir Trail since. He's hiked the Wonderland Trail and worked summers as a wildland firefighter. He's also supported the homeless and more importantly battled his own mental illness, which is a big part of the discussion this evening, and it led Kevin to bike 3,500 miles across the country to find peace. And he did it with his dog Rocky riding along in a trailer. This journey helped Kevin overcome one of the darkest moments of his life, and he's very open about it. Kevin received some incredible support on his ride from fellow firefighters, family, friends, and many, many strangers. So tune in to the first of a two-part interview, which is intense at times, and is detailed in his book, Above the Ashes, which I hope you'll check out because it's a true story of survival, both internal and external, and very emotional at times. And here again is KC, better known as Kevin Conley. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is Bird Shooter, and I'd like to welcome back Kevin Conley to the show. We know him as KC, as 30-pack in prior episodes, but tonight we are here to expand on our previous five hours of conversation and get you caught up on what he's been doing since 2016. Kevin is grateful to be alive and he's here to tell you why. In the show, he tells us about his life as a wildland firefighter, his battle with mental illness, and his subsequent 3,500-mile ride across the country to beat it, which he details in his book, Above the Ashes. Kevin, great book and a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Thank you so much, Bird Shooter. Yeah, it's an honor to be back and uh, reconnect again after so many years. So I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to share this conversation with each other, but with also with uh, the world. I think it's going to help some folks, and uh, everyone likes hearing some badass adventure stories. And, you know, my mom says, everyone likes a firefighter, so... We- <laughs> So True I'm that. glad to be here. Glad to be here, brother. Awesome. Well, hey, I mean, to say a lot has happened since we last spoke is a major understatement. Do you, do you recall our last conversation on the N2 Backpacking Podcast? So our last conversation was about, um, well, we talked about my love story on the Pacific Crest Trail and hiking the PCT. I think that was our last time that we spoke Uh other than through like text and stuff like that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you you had uh, spent a couple years, I think, traveling across the country and doing a lot of awesome adventures. You just turned thirty at the time, and uh, we did a, a, a two episode session, episode thirty six and thirty seven, called Thirty at Thirty. 
and that was October 26, 2016, just over six years ago, if you can believe it. Wow. Yeah, and so you had just turned 30 at the time. You are now... I'm 35 now, yeah. When okay. I, I spent my 30th birthday, that was um, my first week being a wildland firefighter. When you were, uh, when you were thirty, when I was thirty, yeah, okay. that was my first first season fighting fire. Okay, awesome. Okay, so I'm, I had talked to you right when you were finishing your first season, then, right? I'm not. I'm not sure on that date. We'd have to see when it was published. Okay. Now, did we talk about fighting fire on that? No, I don't. I don't know if you'd started your fire fighting uh, journey yet, but. Um, could you have ever imagined at the time how your life would change since that last conversation we had in 2016? No, not at all. Well, that's such a wild, wild thing. I've lived such a spontaneous life where I sort of let the wind pull me in directions and, and let it push me so freely. Like before the Appalachian Trail, I would have never told you I was going to hike the Appalachian Trail. And then right after it, I wanted to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. But right after it, I would have never told you, oh, in six months... I'm going to work the next six months, quit my job again, and then hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And then after that, I would have never told you I was going to go on a 20,000-mile road trip the next year. Then I was going <laughs> to do Burgers and Love, and then I was going to work wilderness therapy for a couple of years, and then I was going to do Burgers and Love again, and then go down to Hurricane Harvey, and then become a hotshot firefighter. And then I would have never guessed any of this, any of it, which is such a beautiful way to live, just to accept new beginnings and, and to let the punches roll and throw a few back and and just live a life. Uh, you know, I don't have kids. I'm not married. So I have a chance to live my dreams and spend time with people and, and what I want to do. And I just follow my passion and purpose. And then I also sort of just the, let the wind blow me. And I'm like, all right, it's time to go about, out west again. And I have the freedom to do that. And, uh, you know, I'm not stuck with a career that I do or don't enjoy. I'm just stuck living every moment to the fullest. And it's been a really blessed and I'm very grateful for the life that I've, I've lived helping, uh, myself be happy and helping, helping others, giving back. So, I mean, Kevin, you're obviously here to, to tonight to talk about your book, which goes into, uh, uh, some of the challenges you had and how things got really dark for you the last few years. Um, so tell me first, before we tear into all that, where are you living now? Well, so I'm back in Virginia right now. I just moved, uh, from Salt Lake city back to Virginia to uh, just with my family and spend some time with them around, uh, you know, Thanksgiving and the holidays. Okay, awesome. Yeah, good time to be home for sure. And are, do you plan to go back on the fire line next summer? If I said that correct, if that's the right term. That is the right term. Um, yes, I have my applications in and I, I really do want to go back to fire. My heart's definitely there. Um, I started training for fire season next year and a lot of it's really going to come down bird shooter to what sort of successes that happen with my book in the next six months. Um, if I get some good book deals and, and I start making some traction and, and doing some public speaking, I might unfortunately not be able to do that. But that's where my headset is, my, my mind frame right now. I, w I would love to go back to fire next year. You're going to hear me say this a few times because I, I honestly, I, after reading your book, I, I seriously think you've got a, a screen play for sale in there. And I would not be <laughs> shocked if it got opted for a movie. But um, so let, let's kind of move into that right now. Can you tell your listeners your three primary objectives um, this this last year and a half? Because um, your life changed drastically, and that's really the point of this podcast. Uh, but you you say multiple times in the book that you had three goals, and I think we got to get those out there 
first before we go into this deep dive on 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 your book and your life these last few years and um, where you are now with your life. Three right, goals. Totally. Yeah, my three, um, when I was suffering through mental illness and I, I set off on uh, my journey to, to find peace, I set three goals. And the three goals were, one, I wanted to find mental clarity and stability and, and free myself from my mental illness and, uh, you know, just make my heart still again and clear my mind and, and just uh, free myself from this hell and, and from this silent suffering that I was going through. And the second one was I want to raise a lot of money for the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, whom assist families that are going through uh, fatalities when a firefighter dies in the line of duty. They assist those families and uh, also help people get therapy that are going through rough times. They do uh, countless, countless things to help wildland firefighters and their families. And um, they, they focus on helping uh, when a firefighter is killed, helping their family deal with that terrible time in so many ways. They're truly angels on earth. And the third thing um, that I wanted to do was to raise a lot of awareness about mental health and let people know that it was okay to be vulnerable and let people know that they're not alone. Other people go through depression and, and have severe, you know, mental things, PTSD or whatever's going through. I, I wanted people to let, let them know it was okay to speak about. And even though, you know, it's really hard for men to speak about some of these topics, um, and being a man and being a firefighter, I wanted to open that door and let people know um, it was okay and, and it was comfortable. We should be able to talk about mental struggles comfortably like we talk about football in the living room. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to you know, raise some awareness about that. Yeah, yeah, I like that you were super honest about that and super open, super open about that. So, I mean, recurring theme here, and we're going to hit it a, a number of times in this discussion. Fix self, raise money for firefighters, and raise mental health awareness, right? Um, you talk about that a lot in your book. So uh, right on. We've got a lot to discuss, so we're going to dive in right now. Are you ready? I'm ready. So, Kevin, can you remember the first time we met or recap? I do. I do. I do. And I, I think that's one of my – I've told this story so many times, and thank goodness that you have video of that moment because there's so many – so on long-distance hiking trails, Appalachian Trail, Continental Divide, Pacific Crest Trail, whatever trail it is – uh, hikers get a, a trail name and it's typically after something that they, they do. And it was on my third day on the Appalachian trail. I met you at the Whitley gap shelter and, uh, carried a 30 pack of beer up and there's a cool video of us at cow rock and, and we're watching the sunset and, uh, I cracked you a beer and you said, we got to give you a name, something like 30 pack. So bird shooter, uh, you gave me my trail name that's been around um, for the last decade. Yeah, I was watching the video just last week in preparation for this interview. So it was episode 13. We talked about that. I, I met you at a shelter and, uh, was with a whole group of through hikers and had brought in some trail magic and they wiped out the trail magic in seconds. So you, me and another through hiker went into town, got some food, got some more beer, came back, had an awesome fire and had some good music that night. Uh, well, we had a guitar player, flute player, um, thought i remembered like some kind of weird small mini banjo or something but that was that was a really fun night for sure that was an incredible night and that was sort of that was my first uh night on the appalachia trail camping with people and it's such a special special night and then we've had some good conversations since then i haven't seen you in person since that that day yeah that, that's that, crazy that, but we've kept in touch morning. too which is awesome oh yeah. i swear you'll be invited to my wedding you're 
You gave me my trail name. You're like instilled into my life forever. <laughs> You're like playing it in there. Oh, I consider it an honor. Thank you, man. Uh, so, uh, I, and you know, I think that's part of what I wanted to get to tonight was you were in such a happy place then, which is a major contrast to the conversation we're about to have. But before we go there, I got to give you a nod to some of the hiking and backpacking things that you've done because some of your adventures, they're legit and they're epic. Do you want to give a summary of your long distance hikes or do you want me to do it? Oh, I can. There's a lot of them to go through. Uh, gosh, well, I did the Appalachian Trail. The next summer, I did the Pacific Crest Trail. I've done the John Muir Trail, which is 223 miles in the Sierra Nevada from uh, Mount Whitney to Yosemite. And that's north to south. You either start or end at, at Whitney and then end or start in uh, Yosemite. I've done that four times, and then I've done countless Grand Canyon, Wonderland Trail, the Olympic Coast a few times, um, all just about every piece of Utah you could touch. Yeah, I've done done a few backpacking trips. I uh, tallied up some. Uh, there's a loose number that I'm above, but uh, 10,000 miles backpacking over and uh, 10,000 miles bike touring. Yeah, yeah, and biking is a whole segment I want to get to here in a second. Hey, before we get there, though, the John Muir Trail, you did it multiple times, four times, I think you said. What made you go back to the John Muir so many times? It's beautiful, and it's so rugged, so rugged. What I really, really love about the John Muir Trail is when you start at Whitney going north, it takes, I think, the first resupply that you get is eight days. So seven or eight days, 150 miles, something like that. So you're just out in the wilderness for a week, seven or eight days. Um, you know, we were doing 20 miles a day. A lot, a lot of people do it a lot slower. Um, some people do it faster. But that's what I love about it, just being – you like go from whatever job you're doing or wh whatever your structure is in your life, and you're just immersed in the wilderness for eight days right away. Yeah, yeah. And you're above and, tree line a lot too, right? So I know that's a big draw for the John Muir. Yeah, I know. It's so exciting. The first day you climb, uh, I always go north. I've done that on all the long trails. And the first day you go up Whitney. And so you're up at uh, the highest peak in the lower 48, uh, 14,505. And yeah, you're just around 10,000 feet the entire trail. It's incredible. And uh, yeah, you know, when I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail, when I was going into Mammoth Lakes, which is part of the John Muir Trail, I met an older man. He's probably... Uh, in his late 60s, early 70s. And he was so excited to talk to like a through hiker. He never hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. And he was from New Zealand. And he said, I want to tell you guys something cool. I said, what, what? And he said, this is my 26th time hiking the John Muir Trail. Wow, okay, that's impressive. And, and he just went over all the waterfalls, how much he loves it, the people he meets, the experiences he has out there. Yeah, cool. And it when you do it there's a reason that someone from new zealand flies out here every couple of years to do it over and over again because it's it's you get you encompass almost everything the the beauty on that trail is is truly remarkable and, and hard to beat yeah it, yeah I, I mean it's been on my list for a while you know i, I mean I, I will definitely do it at some point i promise you but it, it's a statement that you've done it four times when you could do a lot of trails which you have but you know i had to ask that's why i asked the question Kevin, another question for you, too. A lot of people hike because they're at a crossroads in their life, and you've talked about the healing power of hiking in previous podcasts, but but yet you chose to bike and not hike when you're your darkest hour. Why why was why was that choice made? Yeah. 
Um, when I did get into bike touring, I fell in love with it. And the main reason, it's, it's so hard to tell you why I chose that because I was in such a dark place. It just hit me. It was uh, epiphany might be the best word that I could use for lack of better terms. That time of the year, October, end of October, there's not a lot of long distance hiking I could do. And I looked at my bike and I knew I could ride my bike. And that's what I did. There wasn't too, uh, there wasn't a lot of thought to it. It was like, I got to go, I got to move, I got to pick myself up and I'm going to do something about how I'm feeling. And it was the time. And I had a bike and I had my gear and uh, I had to get out of Salt Lake City and pick myself up. Yeah, I applaud you for that. And we were going to talk in detail about that. Um, now, one thing that was something I wasn't really following you on, you know, after our last conversations, but you, you've actually done a fair amount of biking. I believe you've biked uh, long distances multiple times. So this was not your first major bike ride. It, it wasn't like you just woke up one day and said, I'm going to get on a bike with no experience at all. Um, do, do you want to talk about some of your previous trips? I would love to. Yeah. It's actually um, a bird shooter. I think you'll appreciate the story of how it, uh, it all came to fruition. So in, let's see, 2000 and gosh, this was a while ago. So I was dating the woman that I met on the Pacific Crest Trail, a wonderful, fierce, beautiful woman from Montana. Uh, she was down in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We went, I went down there. We got our wilderness first responder together. And she had this vision that her and I would get touring bikes and we would go up to New Hampshire and Maine and go on a beautiful uh, bike tour for a couple months. We had a little bike and backpack trip. That's awesome. And uh, I'm so excited. And I love this woman so much. I was like, all right, sick. And I was on my way back to Virginia for the weekend. And I stopped at a bike shop, found a really badass bike, uh, steel frame, and specialized AWOL Elite. And I picked up the bike, 1600 bucks, whatever it was. And I was so pumped. We broke up that weekend. Uh. And I was like, shit, I've never been bike touring. Now I got the bike. And then I bought paneers. And it's kind of a, it's a hefty investment to get yeah, into for sure a lot more than backpacking actually right like i know that biking equipment's more expensive it's pricey and uh luckily i had you know i had my basics i had my sleeping bag my tent all the all that kind of stuff that meshes right into that yeah that culture and uh yeah then we broke up and i got this bike and i was like fuck i can't remember the last time i rode a bike <laughs> and i i just started riding the bike and i fell in love with biking again and i went for my first mini bike tour up in Washington State up on San Juan Lopez and Orcas Island and that was my first time doing a bike tour like we left Seattle took the ferry and rode our bikes around these islands which are super bike friendly and obviously beautiful views being on these islands and watching the sunset you know sitting at a campsite watching the, the waves crash and watching the sunset and eagles are all over the place and a couple months after that it was after my first fire season so it was in March, and uh, I, I got offered a job in California on an engine crew. And engine crews train a lot differently than a hotshot crew does. And I, I'm down visiting my buddy in Los Angeles in Manhattan Beach. And he had just finished a ride from Manhattan, New York, on the Trans-American uh, bike, bike ride 
the Trans Am is what they call it. And he, he rode from Manhattan, New York to Manhattan Beach, California, where wow. he where he lives. So he rode across the whole country and he has a big map that the American Cycling Association has figured out all these routes. Hey, can I just and interlude for a second, Kevin, and saying bike, yeah. biking out of New York City sounds like the most scary thing you could do in your life. Is that fair to yeah. say? I was yeah, just there like two insane. weeks ago. I can't imagine driving a bike through there. Oh, I wouldn't even walk through there. <laughs> yes, that wow. does sound insane. But uh, long story short, so uh, I was down visiting my friend Cartwheel from the Pacific Crest Trail. He just finished this big bike ride. And we went out, uh, had some fun that night. We get back to his house. It's like 1 a.m. And I'm looking at this map. And I'm like, dude, there's a route from San Francisco to San Diego. I was like, do you care if I leave my truck here and take the train up to San Fran and ride all the way back down to your house? He's like, sure. <laughs> so that was my that was my first bike tour. And I took the train up to San Francisco. My buddy picked me up, drove me like 100 miles north of San Francisco and and rode down to, um, the border of Mexico, and I loved it. And it was just such a magical experience. I met a couple of other bike tours out there, and then I got back to his house, took the train from San Diego back up to L.A., and I was like, dude, do you mind if I leave my truck here for like a month? And we <laughs> Free parking. We, we went, out, uh, went out that night, and I'm looking at the map again, and I'm like, Oh, there's a bike route from the Canadian border all the way down the coast to the Mexican border. And it's uh, about 1,650 miles from uh, northern Washington, the border of Canada, to the Mexican border, uh, south of San Diego. And, yeah, left my truck there, grabbed my bike, all my gear, and took the train from L.A. to Bellingham. My buddy dropped me off at the border and rode from Canada to Mexico. I did both those back-to-back, so it was like... 2,500 miles in uh, a month and a half. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, so you have an impressive, pretty impressive hiking resume and a very impressive biking resume. Um, and so, you know, my first thought was, oh, man, you know, like, he's got his dog. Why not go just do the Continental Divide? And then you bike across the southern tier. Why, why did you, well, I'll let you explain it. So um, you, you're in the midst of a very serious life crisis, and you choose to uh, bike across basically the southern tier of the country, but also from San Francisco down to San Diego. So do you want to kind of tee us up to that, and then maybe we talk about your firefighting, and then we uh, then we really bring this together? Yeah, like why I started in San Francisco? Well, yeah, that's that. to me that was interesting, right? Because, you know, there's biking across the country, but there's starting in San Francisco and going south and then coming across. Yeah, the reason I did that was because my first severe panic attack that I had was in Big Sur, which is south of San Francisco. And I used to go there all the time when I had rest and relaxation, R&R days, uh, fighting fires in Yosemite. Mm. And I had my first one uh, right around November 10th, a couple years ago when I drove out there. And it was a very painful night that ended up being a really difficult, difficult uh, year. And, and when I left, I, I sort of wanted to go back to that place where it all started and put that to rest. I like it. I, I get it. I totally get it. And I really like, I understand totally what you're saying there. So that's why I started in San Francisco. And then uh, there was a landslide that closed that section of Highway 1, so I was unable to 
bike that section. So I actually did a, I had to go from San Francisco to Monterey and then uh, rent a car. I had to go around Big Sur. And I, I think there was some sort of energy that was like, I don't know if you're ready to go back there right now. You cannot talk about your bike ride in your darkest hour without talking about firefighting. So we got to talk about that for a minute. Um, you clearly have a love for the backcountry. You clearly have a love for adventure. Is that why you became a firefighter? You know, I've tried to think about this so many times, Bird Shooter. Why did I become a wildland firefighter? I, it's got to be. It's got to be because I, I care about, you know, public lands, national forests, uh, national parks, and, uh, you know, I care about people. You know, we're always out saving communities, uh, protecting land, trees, and, you know, rivers, whatever it is. And I wish I could tell you why, but that's the only reason I think is, is subconsciously I want a job that was, you know, fixed to keep me outside and, and protecting, you know, something rewarding, something with a purpose, something that I really cared about. And I never felt so strong with the way I woke up every day and went to work as I did when I was a wildland firefighter and put on my uniform and went to work. I was, I was so proud of what I was doing and, and what, you know, we stood for and, and what we were doing on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. It, it makes total sense to me. I mean, just, you know, knowing you, like I know you, that it makes a hundred percent. Um, it, it matches up perfectly. I, I totally get why you did it. When, when did your career start? I know we were talking that this was probably like 2016, 2017. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. My first season was, uh, yeah, my, on uh, my 30th birthday. So that was uh, 2016. Yeah, so I, I spent four years fighting fire. I, I spent my first rookie season on a fire engine in Helena, Montana. And then I spent the next two years on the Snake River Hot Shots in, in uh, Pocatello, Idaho. And then the, my last season fighting fire was on a module, a wildland fire module in Yosemite National Park based out of uh, El Portal, California. Some of the areas you mentioned I'm familiar with, and they're beautiful, by the way. Um, so, I, you know, it, I, I can totally understand why you'd want to be immersed in in uh, terrain like that and, and some of the country that you were in, especially in the Rockies. Phenomenal. Hey, but one thing, a question I had for you, though, uh, Kevin, was you used terms like hot shot and smoke jumper uh, a lot in the book. Um, can you help the listeners understand, you know, what those sort of terms mean? Like, you know, where, where they come from? We we were also talking about wildland firefighters instead of like um, I'll let you describe it right because there's a lot of terms that are out there and I'm not sure what they all mean and what what are correct and what are not. Right. Well, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of moving pieces on a, a fire. I mean, there's uh, on big campaign fires like huge ones, you know, hundred thousand, two hundred thousand million acre fires. There's a there's like a whole city that that moves into there. To, fight this and then and then you got so many people working with aviation logistics there's so many different avenues so my first year was on an engine um, which most people can imagine like a in a city you call it structure fire so you have these huge fire trucks on wildland firefighter uh, fire we have uh, smaller trucks than the, the big red and white ones that you see going down the road so an engine crew has water and uh, you have type three four five and six engines which are changed on size and capability how much water they have how big they are uh, what their capability is uh, driving off-road so you have your engine crews 
and then you have um, hand crews. So you have type one and type hand, two hand crews. So type one hand crew is a hot shot crew. Hot shots, uh, that originated a long time ago in Southern California. Hot shots go to the, the hottest part of a wildfire. Mm, the hottest, rough. steepest, most dangerous part of a wildfire. They, they hike in. And a smoke jumper, what they do is they fly in, parachute in. Okay, and makes sense. A lot, of, a lot of smoke jumpers will go to more remote fires that you could not hike into. It'd be too far. There's no road access for an engine. So they'll fly into, not all the time, but typically like a smaller isolated fire, and they stop it before it becomes a big fire. Okay. A big fire. So they're, they're kind of on the pre-attack, basically. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you, you did both, I think, right? Do I remember that correctly? No, no. I was on an engine, a hotshot crew, and then a module. Man, the um, smoke jumping sounds fun to me. Like, you get to jump out of planes and go in the middle of nowhere. That sounds like a cool job. Yeah, that's the most badass job, definitely, in fire. Also, the they have the hardest requisite. It, it's really hard to get into that um, regime, to get into that that group it's really hard to become a hot shot too uh we have a joke that uh you know we hike into the fire and they jump in so we talk some, <laughs> you, some, you guys work some, harder obviously that's funny no we have a, a a healthy respect for each other we but we talk a little shit just for fun part of the deal i got it um all it, to become a smoke jumper all, all the smoke jumpers are hot shots and then they become smoke jumpers that's sort of like a prerequisite to become a smoke jumper okay interesting Okay, so I don't know a lot about the firefighting world. I, I listened to some of your podcasts on uh, a, a, another network, which was very firefighting oriented, which was really interesting. I was thinking it was the Anchor Podcast, right? Anchor um, Point, yeah. Yeah, or Anchor Point, yeah. So I learned a lot uh, from listening to that. Uh, if, it, if the listeners are not familiar, Kevin's done um, at least three podcasts with them, and I, I it was really interesting to listen to those before I put this uh, show together. Um, hey, but one thing you said, Kevin, that I really like is we get paid shit, they feed us shit, and we sleep in the shit, and we love it in the book. That was one of my favorite <laughs> quotes. Can you talk to that? Because I love that. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Um, the federal government doesn't pay wildland firefighters that much money. I think my first season, I made $14 an hour, and that's working... 2,000 hours in five months, which is how many hours most people work in 12, mm-hmm. uh, a, a normal nine to five. And yeah, I mean, we just sleep in the dirt, which we love. Uh, sometimes sometimes we're eating uh, MREs from the Vietnam era, you know, old MREs from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Who knows where that box is coming from? Well, it says right on there and yeah, we just we eat shit, we get paid shit, we sleep in the shit. You know, sometimes we'll be sleeping right next to the fire. And it's really when I say shit, like there's most of the season you're sleeping in in some smoke, uh, and that's just what it is. And we love it. We love it. You know, Kevin, it sounds like backpacking in the late '80s with a lot more weight, a lot more heat, a lot more effort, and a lot more risk of dying. Oh, damn right. Yeah, that's a whole other beast. What what is the what's the typical schedule for a backcountry firefighter? Because I remember you had mentioned that there were days where you it sounded like you didn't sleep a lot, and then you worked just for weeks at a time. Can you can you talk to that? 
Yeah, typical. Uh, the typical schedule when so the first two weeks of fire season are called criticals. You're doing all your training, death by PowerPoint, running a lot, carrying a lot of gear, learning all the tools and tricks of the trade. Um, after you get done with criticals, uh, which every crew has to do every year, it takes about two weeks. Then you get on the board, which means you're like for a hotshot crew, we're nationally available. So we can go to a fire anywhere in the country that uh, the government wants to send us. I'm not going to go into the, all the names and organizations that figure out all the dispatching work. But um, all, all of a sudden, you're just assigned. So we'll go out and we'll do uh, project work, uh, help thin the national forest that's closest by our base. And, uh, yeah, they call it project work. We're helping out roads, uh, backcountry roads. We're thinning a forest, so if it does burn, it's not going to burn as intense and, and, and hot and spread as fast as it it could because the understory is not cleaned up. And then all of a sudden, you'll be out doing project work, and you're called to a fire. Um, we're always ready, 24-7. We're ready at the drop of a dime. Then we go out to a fire. We work typically 16 hours a day, Ugh. then eight hours of sleep. You do that for 14 up to 21 days and then you have one day where you usually are driving back wherever the assignment was and then one day we're, we're refurbing we're cleaning up the trucks we're you know fixing the chainsaws sharpening our tools and then we get two days off um sometimes in the middle of the season they'll give us three days off so you typically get two or three days off every month and it's 14 on two days off 14 on two days off uh 16 hour shifts Hey, so a question for you, Kevin. You were talking about, when we were talking about the biking piece of this, that when you got your days off, sometimes you'd go over to San Francisco. I mean, do you, how do you have enough time to do that? Are you catching a, a ride on a Forest Service plane? or I mean, how, how can you make that work? Um, when I lived in, uh, when I worked in Yosemite National Park, I was about three and a half hours from Big Sur. Okay. So on my two days off, like the day that we do a refurb is, is more your uh, classic, like nine to five, you know, eight, eight to four or something. We're cleaning up when we get everything done. Um, then I drive out that night. And yeah, it's only like, you know, one night and then one day there and then I'm coming back the next day. It's not a lot of it's not a lot of time off, but, you know, just to reset, recharge and right. sit on the be beach for, you know, experience summer for that one or two days that I can experience it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I read in your book that one of your longest fire shifts was like over a day. I mean, I think it was 30 hours. How do you function like that? Yeah, that's correct. We, um, oh gosh, I'll, some of those nights we've had, we've had, a, I've had a few nights working on different crews that were long nights. <laughs> How do you function? Well, what will happen? I mean, it's your job. It's your job. You're on call. You're ready to go all the time. And that was one of the hardest nights of my life. I remember we uh, just finished up. So we wake up at 6 a.m. And then we're, you know, working, working, working. And then we finally get done at like 10, 10, 15. And I jump in my sleeping bag. And, you know, we're asleep in like five seconds, literally. There's, there's no like sitting there. <laughs> I, I don't doubt that. It's like hiker midnight, right, when you're on the trail, you know. Hiker midnight's like 8 o'clock. Yeah, and we get I might have been the first one with my boots off in my sleep bag and you don't set up a tent like you just jump in your bag and fall asleep and 
I remember hearing my name and I thought I was fucking dreaming. They're like, Conley, Conley. You know, a lot in fire, you say people's last names and they're yelling my name. And I'm like, am I fucking dreaming? And they're like, load up. So in fire, you have some certain words, uh, little phrases that everyone knows. So when you hear load up, that means we're loading up the, the trucks. Right. When you hear gear up, that means put on all your fucking gear and let's go. Yeah. And I hear load up and it's like 1030. And I'm like, Am I dreaming? Nope. I got my buddy rolling, running towards me with a headlight. He's like, come on, come on, load up. And I'm throwing my boots on. Literally in like five minutes, we're ready to do any job that it that that you need to do to fight a fire. And that's what we can do. In five minutes, we're ready to go. Yeah, at least you and, got experience, uh, Kevin, from uh, being a backpacker and uh, sleeping dirty and just uh, being ready to go at any time, right? Right. Yeah. No, it's funny. It's like when, uh, when, when you're trying to cowboy camp on a backpacking trip and all of a sudden it starts raining and you're like, is it going to rain too hard? And sometimes you just like grab your, uh, your rain fly and throw it over you. And then you're like, <laughs> it's going to rain pretty hard. I got to get my tent up really quick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's funny. A little, little more tense than that, but, uh, yeah. And then we load up the trucks and we got to do a, a pretty intense burn operation throughout the night and then you see the sun come up and the worst part about working through the night other than working through the night i, I don't think I, I never complained about that job it, it's such an honor um to do that job and and to help people and to help the forest i, I have so much pride and i try to be humble with uh what we do but what was wild that most people don't think is it was actually beautiful to work through the night the it's not as hot. The sun's not beating down on you as there's big flames. As and you fire, have all these clothes on your body, too, which probably make it right. ten times more hot, right? So it's pretty cool at night. Um, literally, like, the weather's cool. Right. And what's the the flip side of that is it's great working at night because, you know, it's not hot. You're not standing next to a big fire. Now, the flip side is that the fire rips during the day. The sun, the humidity comes out. Mm-hmm. And then as we work until like 10 in the morning, now that's our, our sleep times, 10 to 6 in the 6 p.m. at night, 6 in the afternoon. Then you can't really sleep in Nevada during the day because it's 105 degrees. Oh, right. Yeah. And you're like, gosh, it's hard to sleep. Yeah. No, there's some crazy days in fire. You, you never know what's going to happen at the, the drop of a dime. You're fighting this fire and then something more important there's a neighborhood the fire the wind changed and a fire's going towards the neighborhood you got to go protect the neighborhood yeah. next thing you know you're on a helicopter to five miles over on the other side of the fire next thing you know you're in a, a truck and they're like we're going to another fire you go from reno nevada all the way up to montana and you're driving for the next 20 hours like you never everything changes at the drop drop of a dime yeah what, what i got from the book though there's a lot of people that like really respect and appreciate what firefighters do. And you got a lot of love that came back to you during your ride, which I'm, I'm going to save that because we're going to talk about that in depth. But hey, while we're on the topic of just downtime, um, I mean, you know, one thing you said in the book that really struck me, Kevin, was fire season ends, I'm laid off. I mean, that, that blew my mind, so talk to that first. And then when you finally get the time, what do you do in the off season? Because you've got a number of months to do other things, right? Correct. Um, 
Yeah, every season, uh, temporary employees, which uh, a lot of Forest Service um, BLM firefighters are, yeah, you just get laid off. You lose your uh, insurance, you lose your job, you lose your purpose, you lose, you know, your crew. You're out on your own. Do whatever you want for six months. And uh, there's a lot of firefighters that go through struggles in that time, especially the the seasons are changing. <laughs> what, what was the second part you said? Uh, well, just when you get the time off, right? So, you know, now, now you've got all this free time. What do you, uh, you know, what a lot of wildlife firefighters do in the off season? You know, what's kind of a typical um, strategy when you get this free time? What, what you do with it? Or a lot of them take other jobs? A lot of I'd say that's the most Oh, that's like a, a crapshoot. I don't know. Everyone does so many different things. I got friends that are ski instructors, friends that are, are bartenders, friends that, you know, travel to Thailand. I, people do so many different odds and ends. The, the main thing that you do do is you train. And you're not getting paid for the six months you're not working, but we train year-round. You train year-round. So when, when it's the off-season, you know, I might go – this backpacking trip or, or go on this bike ride and go on a road trip or, or whatever I'm doing, but I'm constantly training. And uh, the fire season continuously breaks you down. You go into fire season like a fucking beast, and then it breaks you down. You work your ass off for three months, and then those last two months, your body um, physically is just torn down from the work that you're doing. I mean, we don't run during – you're not running on a fire. However, we train to run. So I got to build up my running. And now I'm not doing push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and, and CrossFit all fire season. You know, you're carrying heavy gear and all that. But I got to rebuild myself for the next fire season. So those five or six months when I'm laid off, I'm continuously training. I'm doing trail running. I'm doing push-ups all day long. I, I usually do... Training for a fire season, I'll work out anywhere from two to four times a day, five to six times a week. You know, I thought multiple times in the book, Kevin, just about like, oh my God, man, this is like, this is a really hard job. I mean, I thought that multiple times. So, um, you know, and, and let's talk about just how scary it can be at times. Because you, you mentioned in the book some scary experiences you had where you literally were in danger for your life. Can you, can you maybe touch on a few of those? Cause I think the listeners would be interested in that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, geez, there's a few of them. I think maybe every, uh, gosh, Berkshire, probably once or, or twice a season, there's a, a near death experience. And let's see, in one of my last fire seasons, we were on. We were up in the Salmon Chalice Wilderness up in uh, northern Idaho, and we got flown in on a helicopter through this beautiful river canyon, and the helicopter lay, lands through this saddle between two mountains, and we get dropped off. There's a a small, maybe 30, 40 acre fire. Uh, an acre is about a football field for people that don't know what how big an acre is, and we land up on this mountain right in the saddle between two mountains. And we're fighting this fire, and fires aren't in straight lines, so it's wiggling on both sides of this mountain. And some of us are fighting on the left flank, some of us are on the right flank. And my my coworker is at the top of the mountain, knocking down a tree, and the tree is probably about the size of a, a Volkswagen 
bus. A huge chunk of the tree just cut out, and it got loose, and it started rolling down the mountain. I'm 500 feet down below. I don't know that this is coming at me, and I got my head down, digging line, and my squad boss happens to be hiking by, and he's scouting out the line in front of us where we need to dig and, and the trees we need to take out. And he happens to just be right right above me, maybe 50 feet uh, to the right of me, above me. And uh, I just hear my name like I've never heard it yelled before. And I just hear, Conley, run! And I look up, and this log, this log, bus is coming. It's going to kill me. And I just start running as fast as I can. And my helmet flies off, and I'm tripping all over the mountain. And the log hits right where I'm standing. It starts flying in the air, and my buddy's right below me. My coworker's probably like a football field below me, and it's coming right for him. And he looked like a deer in headlights. Hmm. And I just yell his name and said, run to me, run to me. And he just ran to me, and then it landed right where he was standing. Wow. Oh, it would have blew your body up. So, Kevin, your book is intertwined with the Wildland Firefighters Foundation, which helps families who lost loved ones in the line of duty. Um, and that, that's a big part of your book. It's a big part of your ride. Uh, I, just, I know you had some really scary experiences where you literally ran for your life from fire. Can you, can you share some of those? Yes. Um, one, of the, one of the scariest moments uh, that I was on a wildland fire was in Nevada. It was called the Sugarloaf Fire, a huge fire ripping through, predominantly through grasslands. And it was rolling over uh, a few mountains, and we were trying to protect. We were trying to stop it from rolling off this two-track old road. It wasn't like a, a heavily used road, so it was kind of overgrown a little bit. But we were using the two-track, which is kind of like two dirt trails next to each other. You know, where a side-by-side ATV kind of drives on. And we are going to use that as a holding feature. So we were going to burn off the road to to burn as much um, of the grass, as much of the land. So when the fire slammed into our fire, it didn't have anything to burn in between us. So we started burning off this road and the winds picked up to like 30 or 40 miles an hour towards us. And we had two drip torches and uh, yeah, we started burning, walking and burning, walking and burning. And the next thing you knew it, the fire was moving really fast at us and you could hardly see because the smoke was so thick and we started running and burning and you know I got 45 pounds on my back uh, wearing long sleeve no mechs long pants and 10 inch boots and got our helmet on and we're running with a drip torch burning the grass in front of us and our squad boss yells at me and my buddy and uh, my crew member and he says fucking run get off the road or get off the field we're in the field burning and so we run back to the road, and he goes, run this way. And we start running this way, running to the north. And we get over this cattle grate, and he goes, fucking run that way. And we do a U-turn and start running south. And the main fire slams into the road ahead of us. And then our fire, because the wind was pushing off the, uh, into the road, 
hits the road and starts fires on the lee side of the road. So now we have fire on both sides of the road, and we're running straight through flames and smoke so thick you couldn't see. Uh, to give me an example, you could you couldn't see out of your windshield if you were driving, and uh, you're just trying to stay on this dirt. You're just your feet know what dirt feels like, and you're not tripping on sage. So we're just trying to stay in the dirt, mm-hmm. and uh, after probably a football field or so, we bursted through the flames and the smoke, and we all fell down to our knees, and my buddy's thrown up, and wow. my squad boss is on his knees, and. I'm choking and you're just gasping for air and you're just thankful that you can see more than your hand in front of your face. Yeah, it was a really scary, scary experience. Yeah, I, gosh, fight fire, almost struck by a tree, almost burned over, almost hit by a log rolled down a tree. I had a helicopter's emergency thing go off for a couple of seconds when we were doing a weird turn. Yeah, there's moments on fire. I mean, it's a very... Uh, riveting experience when you go through these these moments fighting fire i mean you're doing something you really believe in and it's a it's a dangerous job it's a dangerous job and that's why we have so many safety um safety uh points that that we look for you know and we all made it out alive we're all fine but yeah some heroic moments in that job no doubt yeah so i mean i definitely got that from the book and the Wildland Firefighters Foundation. I know that was uh, a big part of your ride. So I think you need to tell the listeners, you know, why it was founded, why they supported you, because um, uh, I, I know what, what you just described was a big, big reason that they exist, right? So the Wildland Firefighter Foundation um, was started by Vicki Miner, and how she started was after the. South Canyon Fire in 1994, which was in Colorado, and there was 14 firefighters that died. Um, there's a few smoke jumpers that died up there on that mountain, and she was inspired through that event because there was um, through that tragedy fire that there was no one that was you know directly helping those families, and she started the Wildland Firefighter Foundation after that that event so they've been around for a long time and vicky minor uh passed the torch uh to her son burke minor who runs it now and they fill in this huge gap for wildland firefighters to help and assist the people that fight fires and to assist their families through tragedies through the hardest moments of their life they help them they fly them to funerals they help with funerals they help uh the burden as much as they can and they assist in just a tremendous way through the hardest moments of a human's life a wife a child they do phenomenal things it's uh, one of the most beautiful nonprofits that i've ever ever heard of and and been a part of i donate uh five percent of my profits to my book to them um uh, my book's actually at the foundation in Boise, Idaho. They have a beautiful part of their organization called the 52 Club, where you literally donate $1 a year, uh, $52 a week, and you can help people that are suffering through terrible losses. And what they do for our community is uh, beyond belief. They really care. 
they're really compassionate and uh, they make a difference in this world and it was an honor on my bike ride to raise money for them yeah and i, I think kevin you need to talk about this because we're about ready to go into your dark hours here and so that's the next thing we're going to talk about but you reached out to the wildland firefighters foundation uh when you're at your darkest hour and somewhere between that group and your bike ride just i mean wow like you know it, it, now you have a book right i mean th- those are two things that come together to um change your life so so the brotherhood is big right it's clear that the brotherhood's big you get a lot of support um across your ride from the the firefighting world not just the, the backcountry folks, but also the ones that are uh, in the urban areas, too. I mean, can you speak to that? Because um, that was a major part of your ride. Yes. Jeez. Um, I think we should talk about where it all started, Bird Shooter. And when I finished my last season being a wildland firefighter, I never thought that was going to be my last season. I never thought, oh, I won't fight fire next year. That was I wanted that to be my career. I loved it. I was so passionate about it. I cared about it. I loved the training. I loved the job. I loved the people. I loved the camaraderie, you know, the brotherhood. And when I left my last season on Yosemite, on the module there, I was just hit like a bus. And I got diagnosed with a severe panic disorder. And... That spiraled me into a really dark depression, and I didn't know how to cope. I didn't know how to deal with my issues. And when I started having panic attacks, my whole body was crippled, and it was debilitating. My heart, I thought I was dying every day. Um, One time I went to the emergency room, and my blood pressure was 220 over 120 and like I just thought I was going to die every day and I used alcohol I'd uh, drink three or four beers just to calm down and that would happen in the morning afternoon night and I didn't want to drink four beers at 11 o'clock I I thought I made it through the whole day and then it's 11 o'clock I'm about to go to bed and, and then I feel like I'm dying and I can't see and I'm in this tunnel and everything closing in and it was hell and I felt so strong being a firefighter that I thought it was so weak to speak about and uh, I just suffered through these panic attacks for a long time and I hid it from everyone I knew I wasn't comfortable talking about what I was going through how I was feeling and I I couldn't go for a run I couldn't ride my bike I couldn't go for a hike I tried all the tools I did have. I tried to go for a hike. Sometimes I would make it uh, half a mile, and I would freak out out of nowhere. I'd just freak out. And my, I don't know. It's so hard. It's like a, It's like the devil was just in my mind telling me, you're not going to do anything you love ever again. And I went through that for 12 months. Do you you think, Kevin, do you think there was a trigger for all this? I mean, I know how stressful firefighting is. I think you talk about in the book that it's very common for first responders to have, um, you know, when when I say very common, I mean, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that there are first responders that have um, 
almost PTSD from their experiences, right? I mean, was there a trigger for you, or can, can you really point to any single event that, that just set this off? Because you had been fighting fire, fires for how long before this really hit you? Uh, for four years. You know, I've, I've tried to, I, I wrote about that in my book, and I was trying to pinpoint like a moment, like what happened? And no, I'm not able to, to do that. I'm not able to pinpoint a moment. What I was able to do was to think about things that, that did affect me, bird shooter, and to forgive myself and to eventually let it go. But no, there was no, that's the thing that blew my mind was like, there's not one fucking thing that happened where it's like, this is why I feel this way. This is what I need to overcome. That didn't exist. Maybe it was a, a conglomerate, like a, a group of things, but there wasn't one thing. And sometimes we have to understand, especially with depression, there's not always going to be a reason. There's not always going to be, this is why it happened. This is what triggered you to feel this way. That doesn't always exist. And that's why forgiveness and, and healing is so important because you don't always know why you feel a certain way. Sometimes you can dig deep. Sometimes there's no digging to be done. You just need to fight and learn to get better and accept what's happened in the past. Yeah, so, you know, it, this was super an interesting part for me in the book, right? And I, I had a lot of backstory with you, so I knew you, you know, I mean, we had talked a lot previous to this, but you, you talked about panic attacks. You couldn't swallow. You got freaked out in the shower. Um, you thought maybe high blood pressure contributed to your... Um, you know, to, to, to the mental health issues. Um, could, I mean, just can you describe what it was like for the listeners? Because it was powerful in the book, and I mean, they can certainly, and I hope they do go by your book. Um, but, I mean, only you can tell it firsthand, like I read it. And then that, to me, that, that to me was really powerful in, uh, in, 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 your, in your writing. Yes. Um. Oh, it's still uh, crazy to think about. I'm in such a good place right now. Um, the wildest thing, the most comfortable place that I was at was falling asleep. It took me ever, forever to fall asleep. But the happiest I was was falling asleep. I just wanted to sleep and sleep and sleep. I didn't want to wake up because every moment, every minute, that I was awake was hell. It was either coming or I thought it was coming and then it would happen. And the panic attacks would just cripple me. They would cripple me. I had, I'm a very social person. I had trouble speaking with people. I started to feel trapped in almost every environment that I was in. If it was in my apartment, in my car, in a tunnel, in an elevator, um, I had trouble showering because I felt closed off. I uh, couldn't hear. I, I got blurry vision. I couldn't see straight. I would constantly like uh, shake. I was like nervous for no reason. Uh, my heartbeat was really high. I was. It, it was detrimental to my existence. I didn't want to do anything that I cared about. I'm an avid back. Uh, cyclist i'm an avid backpacker and uh uh long long distance runner i didn't want to do any of those things 
they I didn't even think about them because I knew what happened the second I walked out the door. And uh, my whole life just crashed right upon my feet. And I lost all interest in everything that I cared about. I, uh, it was hell. And the hardest thing that I went through was I didn't talk about it. I kept bottling it up and I, I didn't tell anyone how I was feeling. And I, I hid it from the world. It, it was hell. It was fucking hell for a long time. Kevin, Kevin, I gotta tell you, man. I read your book. It crushed me. It's powerful. You almost kill yourself. You gotta talk about that. Yeah, so, uh... After feeling those... Those emotions for a long time in my mind took me to a really dark place and I I I anticipated dying and I felt like I was I felt like my only escape was taking my own life and I lost all love for everyone and for everything and I didn't write a suicide note I didn't think about how selfish it is to take your own life. And uh, I went to a really dark place. It happened two nights in one week. And uh, I wanted to kill myself so bad. Luckily, I didn't have a gun. And uh, I thought about stabbing myself, cutting my arm or something. And uh, that seemed too hard to do. So I thought uh, I would drive my truck as fast as I could into a wall. I wouldn't hurt anyone else. I would only kill myself with my seatbelt off. And I grabbed the keys to my truck. I turned off all the lights in my apartment. And I grabbed my dog's, my dog Rocky. I grabbed uh, his dog food and I poured it out on the floor. At least like five or six days worth, I poured it out. And as I grabbed the door to my apartment in the dark, I heard my dad's voice in my head. And I felt his hand on my shoulder. And I heard my dad say, you never give up, son. You never give up. And I closed the door. And I knew I had to do something. And that same night, I said, I got to fucking do something. And I had a map on my wall of the United States. And oh, yes. We talked I about that. At, you saw my map on the wall, man. I looked at the, uh, I thought about the Southern Tier. I thought about riding my bike across the country. And I knew I had to call somebody and maybe not tell them how I was feeling right then. But just if you say it out loud, it's going to come true. You got to do it now. And. So I called the Wildland Firefighter Foundation and I said, hey, I'm not, uh, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to ride my bike across the country and uh, I want to raise money for you. And saying it out loud, like, I'm going to do this. I don't feel well. That sort of made me feel better right then. And that was the first time I like, it doesn't sound big. Like I didn't say I'm about to kill myself. I just said, I don't feel well. But just saying I don't feel well, well like to someone 
out loud on a voicemail. That that helped me a bunch. Yeah, and, they, and called, uh, they called you back immediately, right? And then Burke Miner, the uh, Burke Miner's, Vicky Miner started the foundation. Uh, her son Burke runs the foundation now, currently. And yeah, he called me back first thing in the morning. He said, "We support you. Anything we do to help, we're there." And uh, me and Burke have became friends since, and me and Vicky, the the founder of the foundation, have been friends since. And their support behind me was incredible. And then I had firefighters uh, helping me out along the entire route, and I felt this brotherhood come back. And I just I felt like I was part of the community, and I I felt so much support behind me, and I knew it was time that like no one was coming. No one is fucking coming. I had to do something. And when I decided to do something, I did it. And that's so important to human beings is understanding, like, there's no one coming. You have to do something for yourself in order to get out of whatever situation you're in. You can overcome if you allow yourself to put yourself in a position to overcome. You can overcome any obstacle when you believe in yourself and you put one foot forward. You can take two steps back and only one step forward. Keep making steps forward until that situation flips. Yeah, so Kevin, we have not talked about, I think, something that's important here. You did seek help, but unfortunately, the help probably made things worse could you speak to that because i think that's important here um that you recognize it was making you worse and you did something about it yeah it took a oh that's a it's it it took me a while um i was so ashamed of how i was feeling which is such a interesting feeling to say out loud like i was ashamed with how i am who i am like, that's bullshit. Who you are is who you are. How you feel is how you feel. You should be able to say it. Anyways, I was ashamed with feeling this way. I was a few, I was ashamed with having panic attacks all day long. And the first time I went to a hospital, I was nervous to speak to a medical professional and tell them how I felt. So I had, I don't know, four beers. Before I went, I walked in, they looked at my blood pressure. That that was when it was like 220 over 115, 120. And they said, uh, you're an alcoholic, we can't help you. And they gave me a couple AA slips and told me how to go. And I'm like crying. I'm like, can someone help me please? And uh, I had to go to another hospital a few days later. I didn't drink, asked them for help. And then they sent me to a, another hospital, and then they sent me to a, a primary care doctor, and they just uh, fed me medicine and said, try this pill for two weeks, and then we'll double your dosage, try that for two weeks, and then, by the way, your panic attacks and depression is going to get severely worse for the first two weeks. So don't be alarmed if it makes you feel worse. 
And I said, really? So I'm going to take this medicine. It's going to make me feel worse. And then maybe it'll make me feel better in a month. And that didn't work. So I'd take a medicine for a month. Then they'd switch my medication. That didn't work. Then they switched me to it. It, it happens to countless, countless Americans. It's ridiculous. Um, and my doctor is not a psychologist. And uh, I was trying to see a psychologist. I was on a four-month wait list to see a therapist and a psychologist. And that was part of my weakness. Uh, I could have called the Wildland Firefighter Foundation and probably talked to a therapist right away. I, I felt too weak, and uh, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed for what I was going through. And the last doctor, after three medications didn't work out, she put me on Lexapro, which helps millions of Americans. And I ended up being allergic to the medicine. And when I told her my symptoms after two weeks, I was having hives, I was having bloody noses, I was throwing up randomly were my physical symptoms. Mentally, I was uh, angry, having mood swings. I was uh, emotionally distraught. I was like, it, it made me crazy. These are mind-altering drugs. And when I told her what I was feeling, she said, it's okay you're going to feel better soon. We're going to double your dosage. And I was so lost and, and so confused and it was so detrimental and the panic attacks were so debilitating that I, I agreed with her and I said, all right, let's double the dosage. And that really, really fucked me up. Yeah, it's understandable. So, so Kevin, I mean, there's a lot going on here. This is also what we got to call out was this was during the COVID pandemic too. So you had all this stuff going on on top of the COVID pandemic. I mean, do you think that played a part in this at all? No, you absolutely so? not. Okay. That's, I had to ask. I was super curious. I mean, no, do you, do you co co COVID for, for me was, uh, and I was blind to it to, to totally be honest. When I, when COVID hit, I was back home in Virginia when COVID hit. And no one really minded COVID much here. And my family and I did a bunch of uh, uh, COVID help. We uh, fed a bunch of poor families. We'd go to the grocery store and get them groceries and drop them off their doorstep. Uh, you know, social distancing, not having human contact. We were trying to help a lot of people through that. And then when I went out to California, Yosemite was close to the, to the, the public. So we were the only people that were allowed in the national park. So I didn't really understand COVID for when it happened in March or whenever that was. I didn't really understand social distancing and like all this stuff until late November of that year. When I, cause I, I'm fighting fires. All I'm right. gone for most of the month. So it wasn't, it wasn't part of our community. Yeah, so I never really experienced it like most of the population did. No, so, COVID had no effect on, on me mentally or physically, emotionally. No, no way. You know, that was one thing in the book that I immediately thought of um, is, you know, maybe not a major impact, but certainly an impact 
But um, I am curious, though, because yeah, we haven't talked about your dad yet. I mean, and I've got a lot of questions for him because he's a big part of your life, obviously, and a big part of your ride. And um, I know a big part of your dad and his um, – Just he sounds very Christian. He sounds somebody that is always you know, giving in, in many ways to others that are in need and that don't necessarily know him. So, I mean, I, one of the things I got, Kevin, when I was reading your book was, you know, you, and I've known you for a, a while now, I mean, you, you've been helping the homeless for a while. Did you find it ironic, and I, I assume that, that there are some homeless that are definitely have some mental health battles, did you find it ironic that you've given all this help and support to um, those struggling with mental health, and now you're battling it yourself, and you never had it before, you know? Yes, I believe it was, I think it was part of my path. I think it was part of my path. I think I was destined to go through this so I could be empathetic, have compassion for what people do go through and understand it better. And I mean, that's the most beautiful way that I can think about it after going through it, after overcoming it, was to think that I needed to feel that so I could understand people better because I, I really do want to help people. I want to be one with the people. And I think I had to feel that to help those people and, and be empathetic. Like I don't understand a crazy person on, on the sidewalk. You know, I don't understand some of these people. And now I think I understand them a little better. Yeah, and I think what the listeners need to hear, Kevin, is that you know you spent not a little time, but a lot of time feeding the homeless with your own money, uh, literally going out. I think it was in the streets of Seattle. You talk about that in one of our previous episodes. I think actually the last time we talked, um, where you spent a lot of time feeding homeless and getting to know them and getting to know their story. And um, one thing that just struck me, having had these conversations with you, was that. I mean, now you're you're battling. You're having the same battle, right? And so you, you've given all the support, and then these others all come to give you the support. And I think that's where we're headed with this. And, and that's why I was getting kind of choked up before, because um, you had an insane amount of support on your ride. So um, can we talk about your dad for a minute, though? Because I think it's important before we talk about your ride and, and all the support you got. To talk about it. your relationship with your dad. Yes. Yeah, I mean, your 20s were turbulent, right? I mean, I think, and you talk about that when we talked about the Appalachian Trail. Um, and then, you know, I, I know your dad's been a big supporter for you. I mean, he was a huge supporter for you here on the ride. Um, just just about, you know, the ups and downs. I mean, you know, I think any any child with their parents, they're going to have some ups and downs with them. But, um, man, your story with your father man in the book it's super powerful you got to talk about it yeah i've been uh so blessed with having such a, a a wonderful mother father little brother and my father and i's relationship has been so turbulent for so long great childhood rough teenage years rough early 20s and uh i, I just got in a lot of trouble as a youth, uh, smoking pot, drinking alcohol, selling pot, and 
and just being a douche and not caring about my my family you know stealing twenty dollars here and there and uh sneaking out of the house and just driving my parents crazy and my dad was my number one supporter when i was growing up he always had my back and uh ever since i was a kid he taught me to give back to people that are less fortunate and uh to help the poor and to be a role model be a leader and and be someone that cares in the world just be someone that cares and is kind and the 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 number one he always number one thing he always told me was always finish what you start always follow through always finish what you start and never give up and uh he was an incredible role model for me my entire life and we lost uh we lost our friendship as a, a father and son we lost our friendship as friends you know we we lost all that when i started getting in trouble in my uh teenage years and in my early 20s and uh when his mother was dying and i reached out to her and went down to the nursing home every day we started to become friends again and we have an incredible bond uh for the last 10 years, incredible bond. But that took a, a, a lot of work. That took a lot of work. And yeah, I'm just blessed that I have a father that never gave up at me and always stood by my side and instilled incredible ethics and, and values into my life. Yeah, you know, one of the parts of the book that I enjoyed, you know, the, the you know, laugh for a minute here was that when you were on your ride, you were actually mistaken for a homeless man. <laughs> and uh, and your dad actually, he talks about it in the book. He writes a, a section, a chapter in your book, which I thought was awesome. Um, but it was interesting to hear your perspective from being mistaken for a homeless man and your dad's perspective uh, as being mistaken for a homeless man. But I, can you talk to that? Because I, I, that was a part of the book that I did enjoy. Yeah, that was so funny. So... Uh... It, it happened, uh, gosh, maybe three, three or four times on my on my bike uh, journey, and my dad's my dad's out there. We, you know, we got Rocky, my dog, obviously, my little puppy, my boy, and uh, we're staying at this, you know, halfway decent hotel. And I go out in the morning. I stop in the lobby. I get a cup of coffee, and I go outside. I'm letting Rocky out, and I'm sitting down on the curb. So I didn't sit on the bench. I don't know where all the red flags came from. But the lady, the manager of the hotel comes out. And she's got a paper plate wrapped in tin foil, So she's got like food or something in it. And she walks up to me as I'm sitting there. Rocky's running around going to the bathroom. And she says, here you go, sir. I'm, uh, um, I, I'm sorry to tell you, but we don't allow homeless people to... Uh, you know, sit here, whatever she said. And I look at her and I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean homeless people? And she says, homeless people aren't allowed to stay here. And I said, oh, I actually have a room uh, with my father here. And she goes, you do? And there's like four people, five people standing out front. They're like pointing at me like I got to go. And I'm like, I'm not homeless. I just woke up, got a cup of coffee in the lobby my dad and I are in room 217, whatever it was. <laughs> and she was like, she never said sorry. And that uh, didn't drive me nuts. I was like, really? She was like, oh, okay. That's all she said. Oh, okay. 
But I, thought, gonna... I thought I remembered later in the book that she comes back and she's super apologetic and she is actually to your father as well. Am I, am I wrong about that? No, you're right. So, okay. so I go back inside, go back to the room. I take a shower before uh, we head out for the day. And uh, when we're walking through the lobby, my dad has these uh, flyers that we printed out saying I'm a firefighter running across the country raising money for charity. And he hands her one, and he says to her, this is my son. And he says something really nice to her and hands her the, the flyer. And we're loading up the car. i got to put my bike in the back. You know, it's like a five, ten-minute ordeal. I'm loading up everything. So the reason we were at this hotel was uh, 20 miles off the route. So I rode my bike to whatever, wherever in the forest, and then we drove – 20 miles north to the hotel and then my dad would drop me off back at the spot so we did that a, a, a few times when i would stop in the middle of nowhere and we're loading my bike up and the lady uh has the flyer i guess she looks up the website uh looks up who i am and she comes out and she is like she's really embarrassed her face is all red she's like i am so sorry that i said that to you god bless you we're going to be praying for you I'm going to send this to my prayer group so they can all pray for you. I apologize for, you know, she was, she felt so bad for accusing me of, you know, jumping to an assumption. Yeah. So you're, you're teeing me up perfectly for the ride, Kevin, because, um, we haven't even talked about your ride yet. We really haven't really dove into some of the greatest parts of your book. Um, so I think it's time. And, and uh, you had a lot of really good, I, we call it trail magic on the uh, Appalachian Trail or on any hiking trail. But what is there a name for that in the biking world? My mother has dubbed it bike magic. Bike magic. Okay. Is that a word in the biking community? No. I don't know if there is a word for that. Jeez, um, that's a really good question. I've never heard a word like trail magic reference for bike magic never hmm. okay in your book you talk about gratefulness is the true key to happiness you must love yourself so before we really dive into your ride can you speak to that it's a pretty pretty impactful quote it was yours your words my man no i know that i just even just hearing it, I'm like, well, it's so true. It's so true. Sometimes we we live through the days. We don't we don't feel the days. We just walk through them. And it's so important to remind ourselves what we are grateful for, like the little things, the big things, the medium things, wherever it is. Right now, your moment that you are in is all that you have. Right now, talking to you. That's all that exists. And gratitude is so important to remind ourselves not of what we don't have, but what we do. To remind ourselves where we are, not where we're not. Sometimes we overthink possibilities and we, we, we think about, oh, I wish I was like that. I wish I had that. I wish I did that. Go fucking do it. Stop saying I wish. Step back 
and sit here? What can you do right now? And so I try to live in the moment all the time. I'm like, I'm going to go have lunch with a homeless person. And I do that at least once a week. And we got to understand the power of now and being grateful for what's in front of us. Gratitude, gratitude, bird shooter. You know how grateful I was for you showing up at that camp spot with Mr. Zip? So, Kevin, you talk about in your book about loving yourself and how it saved you. Uh, how, do you how do you mean that exactly? Loving yourself is so important. Sometimes we break down as, as individuals, and that happens is when we're in marriages, when we're in relationships with other people, when we have relationships with our kids, with our, our family, with uh, you know people out in the community. And it's so important to love who you are, what you're doing, what you're about, and respecting and having a purpose and a passion for who you are as a person, what you're giving out. And I always say, like, let your love pour out and watch it flow back in. We have to focus on who we are as a person. You have to love who you are in order to love anyone else. You cannot forget how much you matter because you matter. You're the first person that fucking matters. You can't help your friend. You can't help anyone else until you help yourself. So when you're going through anything in life, I hope that you speak out and then I hope that you listen to others because other people are going to go through some shit. But if you don't love yourself, you can't love someone else. That's crazy. So you have to love yourself. You have to love who you are, what you stand for, and then you'll be better to the whole community around you, whether that's family, friends, strangers, whoever it is. And always remember that every stranger in this fucking lifetime that you've ever met, they were always a stranger before they were a friend. Respect everyone. Love yourself. That's the end of the first of our two-part interview with Kevin. Uh, but the best is yet to come. In the next show, we talk about his amazing ride across the country, his recently published book, and his incredible and emotional finish in St. Augustine, Florida. Most importantly, Kevin tells us what's next for him. So make sure to check out part two of this podcast, where Kevin rises above the ashes. You've been listening to the N2 Backpacking Podcast. This is your host, Bird Shooter, wishing you the best for your travels on the trail. To subscribe to the show, visit iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or your favorite podcast app. And give us a thumbs up or a positive comment while you're there. You can also stream shows directly from n2backpacking.com. Just click the podcast tab on the main menu. Music from the show was provided by Jerris under a Creative Commons license and is titled Hillbilly Anarchy. The show is a production of N2 Backpacking and is copyrighted by N2 Ventures, Inc. For more information on this podcast or to provide feedback or comments on this or future shows, please visit us at n2backpacking.com. That's the letter N, the number two, backpacking.com. Backpacking.com.